Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to you all. Glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Micah. I am one of our pastors here at Awaken. Uh, today's Sacred Sunday, if you're not aware of that, so there are bulletins. Kathy's got some if you want to follow along. Um, somebody asked, why do we do that? Because this is what we've always done. That's why. That's what churches do. They just keep doing what they've always done. So we're trying to be a church. Uh, no, once a month we take down the screen because, well, I think that's quite lovely, right? Um, that's a Eucharist in the... Um, those three windows there, one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, of which this used to be. Uh, so we pick songs that are a little older, a little further back in the tradition and the story, and sing them together. So that's today. If you want a bulletin, grab one. I've got a few up here. And I'd like to begin with a call to worship this morning. And in just a moment, I'm going to read a couple of psalms, uh, verses from the psalms. And a little bit of context for that. I listened to Krista Tippett's On Being podcast this last week. And uh, she interviews a scientist who studied the, the science of awe, like A-W-E, which you typically wouldn't think you could study as a science, right? Like, how do you, how do you verify awe? How do you measure awe? And so it's an emotion. How do you do that? Uh, turns out you can, because uh, awe actually has physiological effects on our body. And so in this interview, the, the scientist talks about the ways in which awe and wonder impact people. Um, one of the ways is it actually promotes healing in our bodies. So when we experience a moment of awe or wonder, what happens inside of our body uh, promotes the physical healing of our bodies, which I think is just bananas. And the other thing he mentioned was that when a group of people together experience awe, that their bodies literally begin to sync up. They become one. Uh, they studied this group that, uh, at the beginning, uh, their cortisol levels were all over the map. And after they experienced awe and wonder together for a portion of time, it turned out that all of their cortisol levels were like lessened and were all on the same level. Um, and so, those of you who have come to church this morning, and maybe you've asked the question, like, why do we do this? Why is this important? It's my hope, it's our hope, that there would be an occasion for awe today in the next hour. And that together, we would enter into that and maybe have an experience that would heal the bones in your body and the flesh that you carry around that would sync our hearts up together as one so that we might be of one voice in the world of good news. So, let me begin with a few uh, verses from the Psalms. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sing together. This is from Psalm 19. The heavens keep telling the wonders of God. And the skies declare what they have done. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonder. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. And from Psalm 34, worship in awe and wonder. All you who have been made holy, for all who fear him will feast with plenty. Even the strong and the wealthy grow weak and hungry, but those who passionately pursue the Lord will never lack any good thing. God, today we gather as your church for a host of reasons. And I trust that 
you will weave us together as one. That today Jesus' prayer might become a little more true. That we would be one. And that you would bind up our hearts, you would heal us, encourage us, and send us out into the world with good news. Good news for the poor and the brokenhearted, for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for those maybe who feel on the outside of whatever is in. And that we might find you, Jesus, out there, beyond the walls that we create and the divisions that we make. And that you would remind us that this is who you are. So if we want to find you, we should go there. I pray in the strong name of Christ and by the power of God's spirit. The church said together, would you rise if you're able and let's sing together. All right, Awaken. Do you ever wonder, like sometimes when you sing an old song, an old hymn, like how many times that song's been sung in like the history of the church? Or like just in this building, how many times do you think great is thy faithfulness has like echoed off of these walls? I don't know about you, but I think about those things. Um, Welcome to you. If you are new, we're really glad that you're with us. Again, my name's Micah. Um, We'd love to know that you were here. So if you are willing, uh, there's some cards in the seat pockets there in front of you or online. You can click a little I'm new button. Let us know you were with us. Uh, We'll invite you to a beverage of your choice. You can get to know us a little. We can get to know you. Um, If you have tithes or offerings this morning, uh, you can put those in those cards in the black boxes. There's also a number of ways you can give online, usually on the screen behind me. We got our first Venmo donation a couple weeks ago. We've arrived at 2023, people. Well done. Well done. Um, Yeah, lots of great things go out into the world every week because of your faithfulness and your investment in the work of Awaken. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. We can't say it enough. Um, So proud and honored to be one of the pastors here. Um, for lots of reasons, but that being one of them. A um, couple things happening we want to let you know about. Lent is almost upon us. Um, February the 22nd is Ash Wednesday, so we will have a traditional Ash Wednesday service that night, a gathering at 6.30. Uh, we will impose ashes if you would like. Whoa! <laughs> wow! This one time when I was a youth pastor, I was speaking at Faith Covenant Church early on in my career, and um, I was talking about, like, you're, you're free to, to worship however you'd like. And I was like, you're free to shit or stand? <laughs> I mean, we will impose ashes on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, if you would like. And so um, that's happening. And then um, Good Friday at the end of Lent, uh, we'll have a, a traditional Good Friday gathering as well. And if you're interested, we, uh, we are offering baptism on Easter So if you've never been baptized and you're interested in that, on the 26th of February, right after the gathering, I'm going to host a little informational session. Um, Probably won't be long, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, If any of you are interested and have questions about that, would love to chat. All right? Um, Also, um, there are a whole bunch of thank you cards in the back. If you volunteer at Awaken in any way, uh, as a staff and leadership team, we want to say thank you and um, just remind you that we're really, really grateful for that. Those cards, along with a little gift card to uh, Wildflyer Coffee, a new location opening right down the street from West 7th here, which is very exciting for them and us. Uh, there, there's gift cards back there. We'd love to not mail those, so if you would please pick them up, that would be great. They're in alphabetical order, very simple to find, by last name. Uh, I think a stamp these days is like $16. 
So uh, that'll save the church a ton of your money, all right? So just pick up your cards, trying to say thank you. And then my last, uh, my last update before we jump in, prom, friends. I said before this happened, this might be one of those events that you're going to regret if you didn't go. And I have to say, for those of you that were there, would you say that folks who didn't go would regret that experience, not that being there? Man, that was so much fun. We had a real gas. Um, there's a good chance we're going to do it again. I think we maybe made a tradition for ourselves. And um, man, so many, so many hands like helped make that happen to the decorating committee, the you know, DJ, uh, the cleanup crew, man, it was just a real, real, real fun time. So for my first prom experience, you guys, thank you. Thank you. It was great. It was great. So um, that was fun. Check out the Instagram feed for those photos. Um, okay, let's get cracking here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Um, this is the sixth week of a series called The Transformation of Jesus. If you're just with us, we are talking about in, in the season of Epiphany, um, the transformational experience that Jesus must have had to become the kind of person who says yes to, to like the ultimate expression of love, to die on a cross, to give up one's own life for another. And so we're wondering, like, what were the moments along the way that Jesus experienced transformation? Today we're going to hear from a passage, uh, a thread that Mark is weaving throughout his gospel, uh, a thread that by this time in the story you likely would be familiar with, um, and then a, a, a warning that Jesus gives. So, would you please rise in body or spirit for the reading of the word, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. <clears throat> Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? How many of you would be like, yeah, still need a little help here on that one? <laughs> yeah, uh, let's pray maybe for some clarity here. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together as your church. <clears throat> for all the different reasons that are present as to why we're here, I pray that you would take, uh, take us and weave us together as one. That we might be an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. That we, as your people, would have one heart and one voice. Um, be united in the love of God that we've experienced in Christ. And then be good news for the world. Um, so, to the degree that we're able, would you move us along that path today, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of God's Spirit, the church said together. Amen. You may be seated. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be all over Mark 5, 6, 7, and 8 today. And uh, we just read a passage where Jesus uh, 
asks a couple of questions about some things that he's done. He fed 5,000, he fed 4,000 people in two different places, two different events, one to Jews, one to Gentiles. There, was, there were leftovers, and he warns the disciples about uh, a, common, a common trap that I think humans in general, in this case Pharisees in particular, fall prey to. So what I'd like to do today is I want to take uh, this thread that Mark is used, using to weave the story, right? There are four gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them write for different reasons to different audiences. And one of the things Mark wants to do is evident in this thread that he takes in this story that we've read. So I want to build that a little bit. I want to unpack that a little bit and kind of show you why I think this is a theme that Mark is using I want to build some scaffolding for you educators in the room. And then we're going to use that structure, that understanding, to try to interpret what's nearby. Uh, a, weird past, a weird story about a Syrophoenician woman. And then this question or this warning that Jesus gives about the leaven of the Pharisees. And then I want to end with a question from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And we find Nicodemus in John chapter, early in John's gospel, I can't remember which, I think it's John 4, uh, where he comes to Jesus at night in the cover of darkness, is looking for some light. So that's where we're headed this morning, all right? Let's start with the kid's story. Sound good? Do you guys remember the book, Guess How Much I Love You? Remember that one with the two rabbits, little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair? For those that don't have children or don't know this story, uh, little nut brown hair is trying to express their love for big nut brown hair, the rabbit. And he says, you know, he reaches, spreads out his little arms and says, like, this is how much I love you. And spreads out his arms. And then he, this is how wide my love is. And then this is how deep my love is. And this is how long my love is for you. Like, my love goes uh, across the river for you and to the moon for you, big nut brown hair. And the, the elder in the story at each point, uh, offers back uh, a reply to little nut brown hair and says, my love for you is this big. And of course, their arms are much wider, and so it's, it's so much wider. And it's this deep for you, and so much deeper. And my love for you goes across the river and over the hills. And my love for you goes to the moon and back. You've read the story. Good. It's like as if every time little nut brown hair tries to express their love for the elder in the story, the elder's love is just always more. It's always bigger. It's always deeper. It's always wider. It's always further. It's always more expansive. I want you to hang on to that. We're going to come back to it. Let's build some scaffolding. Mark chapter 8. Mark's weaving this thread through his gospel. And one of the things that I think Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is true Israel. Finkel is Einhorn. <laughs> Jesus is true Israel. Mark is saying that Jesus is a representative uh, uh, embodiment of everything that Israel was intended to be. Jesus feeds the 4,000 in our passage, Mark 8. And then he says, do you remember with his disciples what I did? I fed the 5,000. How many baskets left over? Twelve. How many baskets after the 4,000? Seven. Well, don't you understand? Um, no, we don't understand, Jesus. We're a little confused on that. <clears throat> a lot of people have written about what was Jesus saying with the 12 and the 7 baskets left over. A lot of smart people, way smarter than me. 
Um, and there's a variety of interpretations as to what is he getting at. And like, what is Mark trying to say? Mark doesn't help us any. He just tells the story of what Jesus said. Um, I want to offer my attempt at it, and, it, and it's going to require some, some surrounding verses with weird details in each of them. But when you put them all together, I think it paints a, a pretty compelling picture of what Jesus is doing when he's saying 12 baskets and 7 baskets left over. So first, who and what was Israel in the Bible? Uh, this is an all-play question. If you've never been here, I'd love to actually hear your thoughts on this. So shout them out. What do you know about Israel? Who or what was Israel in the biblical story? Jacob. Twelve tribes. Hold on. Jacob, uh, was, uh, he was a, a man, and then he wrestles with God, and his name is changed. He becomes Israel. He has twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. Yes, what else? Covenant people, right? In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, there were ways by which you could make a covenant with a person or a group of people. That usually required blood. So in Genesis 15, we see God like splitting an animal and God walking through these two animals as if to say, we're in this. I'm committing to you, a covenant people. What else? That's it. We've exhausted it. No, nothing more to say. The Torah. Yep, we got the Torah, which is the teachings of Israel first five books of the Bible. Anything else we can say? <clears throat> a physical place. You can actually go there. Yep. Say it again. Wrestles. Jacob wrestles with God. A contested place too. Yeah. The promised land. This place that God promises to bring them as they leave Egypt. So, Israel. <clears throat> the Jewish people. The Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew family. They are in the Bible a group of people that God intends to bring about blessing and healing in the world through. Genesis chapter 12, Abram, Father Abraham, leave your family, your kin, your country, and go to the land I will cause you to see, and I will bless you so that you will become a blessing. <clears throat> so this family is chosen, is selected out of all the families and all the tribes, not because they had more money or had better clothes or lived on the right side of the tracks, but just as a group of people that God chooses to select to say, by your common life together, the world will know, will be invited back, will, there will be a roadway into relationship with God, with the earth, and with one another in the way that it, it was intended to be. So you could almost say that Israel, Genesis 12, is a new creation story. If we have creation in Genesis 1 and a recreation in Genesis 7 with Noah and the flood... Genesis 12 is another creation story, a new moment, right? So this is who Israel is in the Bible. That's their kind of story. By the time Jesus rolls around, we're hundreds of years into this story. And if the intention was to bring blessing and healing and hope to the world through this group of people, how's it going by the time Jesus rolls onto the scene? Well, not terribly well, right? That story, that group of people had become a little insular, had become a little self-focused, not like anyone's ever done that before. And um, Jesus uh, has some challenges for that, some of which we hear in Mark chapter 8. Um, so this is who they are in the biblical story, and this is where we find ourselves. Now, watch what Mark does with this story, this idea of Israel. In chapter 5, if you go back, there are two interactions Jesus has. One is with Jairus' daughter. The other is with a woman who is hemorrhaging. She's, she's bleeding, and she's been bleeding for a very long time. 
Verse 24 of chapter 5, we read, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding, guess how many years? Twelve years. Why does that matter? In verse 41, Jesus says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. In chapter 6, Jesus begins the process of calling a group of people to follow him. They're called the disciples. Does anyone have a guess as to how many disciples Jesus calls? 12. That's correct, friends. You're getting this. Good job. It seems pretty obvious, right, when you start looking at it. In chapter 7, he heals a Syrophoenician woman. More on that in a minute. But you begin to see that Jesus is bringing healing and hope and transformation to who? Everybody. All the people. Gentiles, pagans, every, people who are on the outside, to Israel, to the whole wide world. And then we get his cryptic 12 and 7 baskets. What is Mark telling us? I want to suggest that what Mark is doing, what Jesus is saying, is that Jesus is true Israel. What is 12 in the Bible if not a direct link to the story of the Hebrew people, to Israel? 12 tribes. What is 7 in the Bible if not a direct link to completion, right? What is Sabbath? God doesn't rest because God's tired at the end of creation. God rests because Sabbath means everything is provided. All that you need is present, and one can organize yourself. It's actually a political idea. We can organize ourselves with the reality or the trust that all that we, that we need is present, right? It's complete. In Jesus, Mark is saying, the journey, the intention, the purpose... The vocation of Israel is fulfilled, is complete. Jesus is the representative. He's the complete manifestation of what Israel was intended to be the whole time. He takes its vocation on his shoulders and walks it out to completion, which is healing and hope and transformation for the whole world. He's true Israel. He's the, the light on the hill. He's the city that can't be hidden. He's the justice that rolls down the mountains. He's the one. He's Neo. In him we're one again. Ephesians 2. So, now that we have this scaffolding, this structure, right? You see what Mark's doing with Jesus as this, this idea of Israel's fulfillment in Jesus. Let's, let's look at the Syrophoenician woman. In chapter 7... This woman, Jesus has left someplace, gone to another. He's trying to keep a low profile, but it's not successful. People are coming. And the woman, verse 26, the woman was a Greek. It means that she's not Jewish. She's from outside the camp. She's a Syrophoenician. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, this is Jesus' response. It's one of the most weirdest things he says in all the Gospels. He says, first... Let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. If the children are Israel, and if the bread is the presence of God, and the dogs are the Gentiles, what has Jesus just said? Like, God's presence goes to the Israelites first, so we got to let them eat, so sorry. That's effectively what he said, which doesn't sound anything like Jesus, does it? And what does she say? She says, Lord, 
Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Friends, I want to I posit a possibility. If Jesus is being transformed, if Jesus is truly human, and he's learning new things, is it possible that Jesus responds in kind like a religious Jewish leader, teacher would? Why? Because at that point in time, the focus had become a little tribal. And Jesus' response is true, according to the teachers of the law. Is it possible that in this moment, Jesus changes his mind? That he, he learns something about himself and about God's intention in the world from the lips of a pagan Gentile woman, and he realizes that she's right. Is it possible that Jesus learned something new on this day? That his view of God was actually too small? Now, I don't know if that's the right interpretation of this passage. <clears throat> Some people think that when you read the Bible, there's like one meaning. we got to find the original meaning. And I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's very good. I don't think that's very wise. I don't think that's what the Bible is for. I think the Bible is a, a, like a transformational, formative document that God uses to reveal God's self to us. So as we read it, we're shaped and formed by it. So even if it's not the right interpretation, it's a really compelling question, don't you think? Is it possible that Jesus' view of God expanded? It got bigger when he had this interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. He's corrected by a Gentile. And in this moment, he sees it. And he responds. He's like, oh, it's bigger. It's, it's more than I understood. I, oh, yes. Your, what you've said, your faith has healed you. I mean, do you have a better explanation for that passage? <laughs> I first heard this this. Uh, Wondering for my friend Jer Swigert, who runs an organization called Global Immersion. And Global Immersion is in like conflict zones in Palestine and Israel and at the border of Mexico and the United States. And they, they go there to bring peace in hopes to be peacemakers. And this is a guy who has seen the Spirit of God cross boundaries that you'd never think she would cross. I used she because the Bible always uses she when it talks about the Spirit of God. Did you know that? Okay. So they've seen God's Spirit cross boundaries. Like, God can't work over there, and sure enough, that's, that's where God works. So when Jared offered this reading, I, I was compelled by it, because here's a guy who like, has some experience in this region of, of seeing God's Spirit do things that you wouldn't think God's Spirit would do. So, we have Mark, painting Jesus as true Israel, the completion of Israel, which was to bring blessing and healing and hope not just to the family, but to the whole wide world. Then you have the serious Phoenician woman who maybe challenges Jesus' insular understanding or his growing understanding of what God is up to in the world. And then you have Jesus' warning to the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees because it'll get you. What on earth is he talking about? Uh, you and I, we in 2023, that's what year it is, uh, we have this thing called yeast in our lives, right? You can make bread with it. You can brew beer with it. You can distill spirits with it. You, it's lovely. It does lots of wonderful things in the world. And thankfully, Fleischmann's has um, like 
package that and sends it right to our grocers. And you can buy it in the store. Uh, you can go to the beer store and you can get certain yeast strains. And we've, like, in laboratories, we've propagated it. It's beautiful. But in Jesus' day, like, that's not how yeast worked. It was wild. And it just lived in the air. And so when you'd have things that had sugar in them, like grapes, and you left them out to ferment, yeast would make its way into, and the, the yeast would begin to eat the sugars. And what happens, does anyone know the byproducts of yeast eating sugar? Alcohol and carbon dioxide, friends, that's what happens. So you would, you would get wine, or when you put this, this yeast in bread, the bread would rise because it would eat the sugars and it would create carbon dioxide as a gas coming off. You couldn't just go to the store and buy it. And so one of the ways that you could like get yeast was this process called leaven. And what you would do is you would take the bread that you made from last week and you'd keep a portion of it. And you would add juice to it, like feeding it, almost like a sourdough starter. And that yeast that's remained in the bread would begin to eat the sugars and it would continue to propagate and create more yeast. And then you could put that leaven in the next batch of bread. But the problem is it was like highly volatile and it, it could go wrong in a lot of different ways and become like very poisonous, very fast. The FDA does not approve this anymore, okay? So Jesus takes a metaphor that's very common in their life and he says, watch out for the, the leaven of the Pharisees. This thing that could be good and often is, but when it goes bad, it's deadly. That's the metaphor. Are you tracking? What's the leaven of the Pharisees? <clears throat> I want to begin, or I want to end where we began. Um, in a movie or a show called The Chosen, which I think is on HBO, um, there, in the first episode, there is an interaction that Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, has with Jesus. Uh, well, in the show, it's not with Jesus. He, he goes to uh, this event, and he, there's a woman who's um, possessed by a, a spirit. And he attempts to cast out the spirit, and it doesn't go well. And he's reflecting on that experience with his wife in private later. And, like, you can see the wheels turning for Nicodemus. He's like, not sure. Like, I thought, I'm the teacher of the law. Like, I'm, I'm the guy. All the answers, people are coming to me for the answers with their, of their questions. But I don't have an answer for this. And so you can see things are starting to unravel for Nicodemus. And he, he says, he's thinking about Torah, which is the law, and like the, the, the way by which the Jewish people would have known God and, and related with God through, through Torah. And he brings his wife over and he says, look at, the, look at yourself in this mirror. There's a, a reflective device. Not a mirror, you know. But, and she says, like, I can see the outline but not very clearly. And he says this. What if, what, if, what if it's more beautiful and strange than we could have ever imagined? What if our seeing of God, our understanding of God through this imperfect lens, what if it's more beautiful and more strange than we could have ever imagined? No matter how hard the little nut brown hair tried, the love of big nut brown hair was always bigger. It was always wider. It was always deeper. It was always longer. It was always more beautiful. What is the leaven of the Pharisee? I want to suggest, based on what I know of humans and what I know of religious people, 
that there is a way by which when we talk about God and we begin to try to understand God, we do what we do with other subjects. Think biology or physics or astrology or music even. We have this insatiable curiosity as humans to learn and understand and, and, and have knowledge about something. And we go all in on that thing so that we can get a master's degree of that and get, become a doctor of that. And we can master the subject. And that's wonderful. Like it's created beautiful things in the world. Medicine and buildings and sonatas and right? But when you apply that to God, when you apply that to theology, the subject is not finite. The subject of your inquiry is infinite, which means whatever, you've, whatever conclusion you've come to, it's always going to be more. It's always bigger. It's always, whatever image of God you have and however lovely it is and however beautiful you imagine God to be, God has to be, logically, more beautiful than your imagination of God. And when we stop, when we think we can systematize and box up and propagandize God, you see the problem here, don't you? Because this is why it's so important when we talk about God to offer our, our knowledge claims, our truth claims with open hands, with humility. Why? Because you can't exhaust an infinite subject. There's always more. There will, it's always bigger. The love will always be more transcendent, more beautiful, more extravagant than you can ever imagine. So you can't, you can't say you've got it. And then impose that on other people. This is religious fundamentalism, right? When it goes really bad, when the leaven goes bad and it gets in the batch, you have people banging drums on street corners saying, this is how it is. And if you don't, you go to hell. That's really dangerous. And I think Jesus would say to those people if they were here today, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Be careful of the leaven of the religious know-it-all who thinks they've got the corner on God. We can say we've experienced something and that, that, that's our experience. We can look to the tradition of the people who have come before us and look at their experiences and what they would say is true and wise and good. We can read the scriptures and give our best understanding of what is lovely and good and wise and true about being human in the world. We can, we can say all those things with conviction in our hearts and in our bones and still do it with open hands. How you believe what you believe is more important than what you believe. You've heard me say that before, right? How you hold these things is more important than what you actually say they are. So, as we kind of wrap this up, as we try to land this plane, I want to suggest to you the possibility that what Jesus is warning the Pharisees about, what he's warning his disciples, his followers about, is this insidious desire that we have to, to claim, to control, to master something. And when we apply that to mathematics, it, it's wonderful, it's great, right? But when you apply that to theology and the divine, you, you're, you're, you've got apples and oranges. 
you have a finite subject and an infinite subject. And you cannot exhaust an infinite subject. If you could, you would be what? God. That is correct. And you're not God. I know. <laughs> I'm not God. So this thing that we're doing is called faith. Not certainty. Because we're inquiring an infinite subject. We're pursuing something that cannot be exhausted. Which sounds like an adventure forever. Right? Who's up for that? I want to close with a time of silence. And in this series, we have extended that a little bit more. Because transformation takes work. And we trust that the Spirit is at work in us all the time. And so we want to create a little more space for that. And as we do, I want to invite you to consider two questions. The first question is this. In what ways have you underestimated the reach of God's love? Is there any way you've underestimated the, the depths of which, the, the, the distance God's love could travel? Is there anybody who you just would write off? And is there any leaven that risks ruining the batch in you? So pray with me if you would. God, as we take a few moments of silence and we quiet our hearts and our minds and our bodies to the, to the degree that we're able based on our age, I pray that you would, by your spirit, do the work that you intend to do, that you say you want to do, which is to draw us near to you and to remind us of who you are. So I pray that we might see that your love is bigger, more extravagant, more beautiful, that we would get a glimpse today and that that would change us. So Holy Spirit, do your work, we pray. As we close this morning, <clears throat> we want to invite you to respond. Do that through song and uh, Eucharist. So on my right and left, communion is available for you, if you would like it. There's red wine and there's white grape juice. So we'd invite you to make your way forward and grab a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And as you do, remember know that the body of Christ is broken for you. The blood of Christ is shed for you. The divine mystery is inviting you in today. Um, so let's together, as with, with one heart, respond. And maybe even as we do, the Spirit of God is working and weaving us together to make us one so that we might be good news for the world. That we might be Eucharist. Good gift. So let's do that together. To the church gathered this morning, I hope and I trust that what you need, what you needed, you received, and that you would remember that you're invited into an infinite and immeasurable being, which is God. So say yes fall into that and may you know the mystery and the wonder the awe 
the boundless love of God. And may that shape you, change you, transform you to become the kind of person that Jesus invites you and knows you to be. And by the Spirit's power, uh, enables you to be. So, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his... Nope. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.